October 1986. It was just another day on the job for attorney Bob Fennell until Floyd County Judge John Frazier called him into the office. Frazier caught Fennell completely off guard. But Judge Frazier called me up one day and he said, uh, hey, I need to see you. Didn't say what for. So I thought it was something political. Walk into his office, sit down. And say, Hi, Judge. I said, what can I do for you? He looks at me and goes, I need to ask a favor of you. And I said, sure, you know, whatever. whatever." <laughs> he said, I want you to do the Tim Foster case. Frazier's request opened the next act of the Foster case, dragging Fennell into a life and death legal battle. I'm your host, Grace Snell, and this is episode two of Georgia v. Foster. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Georgia v. Foster, a podcast investigating the struggle for justice when the stakes are highest, the death penalty. Our legal system stands on the idea that justice should be blind. But is it really? Who lives? Who dies? Who decides? On this show, we're unpacking the case of Timothy Tyrone Foster, a black man sentenced to death for murder by an all-white jury in 1987. Bob Fennell isn't originally from Rome. He grew up in Atlanta during the 60s. The civil rights movement and integration rocked his neighborhood. After law school, Fennell headed to the hills of Northwest Georgia for a quieter life. So when I got out of law school, I took I-20 east to Augusta and I-85 south to LaGrange. And I just started going back and forth the state and with a stack of resumes. Fennell decided to take a job offer in Rome and struck up a friendship with the newly elected judge, John Frazier. The two bonded over a mutual interest in politics and Fennell helped Frazier with his campaigns. That's why Fennell assumed that October 1986 meeting would be about politics. Instead, Frazier handed Fennell the toughest case in town, the Timothy Foster case. <laughs> I said, Judge, first rule of politics, help your friends punish your enemies. But Frazier was desperate. He said, I sent so-and-so after the jail and he threw up. <laughs> he said, I need somebody I can trust to do this case. Fennell agreed, but on the condition he get his choice of co-counsel. Fennell chose Jamie Wyatt, a steady lawyer from a respected Roman family, to round out the defense team. Fennell knew he'd need all the help he could get. That's how I got the case, because he had sent about six lawyers out there trying to get them to take the case, and none of them would take it, because it was, a, it was bad. Really bad. After all, Fennell's client was a teenager from the wrong part of town who'd already confessed to the murder of a beloved matriarch. That didn't leave much to work with. Fennell dug deep into Foster's background to prove there was more to the story. What Fennell found wasn't pretty. Foster grew up in poverty with a rough home life, and he got mixed up with drugs and the law. And Tim, there was nothing redeeming about Tim. I couldn't point to a redeeming feature about him other than he was, he was a victim of being a child born into what he was born into. And from, the, from birth, he was marked. I mean, you could have put a scarlet letter on his forehead and said, this is gonna happen to this kid. You would have been right. Dick Hark was a local psychologist who wrote a report on Foster after meeting him in juvenile court. According to Fennell, Hark's report predicted, without intervention, Foster would get into serious trouble. Sadly, no one intervened. The system just processed him. Uh, so it wasn't unexpected that he would ultimately 
get involved in some some sort of criminality that would lead to his demise. Pretty predictable. Fennell believed swaying a jury to this side of the story was his best hope at sparing Foster's life. In death penalty cases, juries recommend a sentence to the judge in addition to finding defendants guilty or not guilty. It's the jury's job to weigh mitigating and aggravating factors. They decide whether or not to advise mercy. Our focus was really to find people who, if we had gotten, been able to get Dick Hart's record into evidence, might realize that this was a kid who never had a chance. You're looking for people who might have some empathy. And so, to use a, to borrow a phrase, you didn't want a bunch of rednecks sitting on that jury. And there's plenty of them around here. Okay. So, so, you know, we were trying to we were trying to do what we could to find people with some degree of empathy for a young black man who's um, got this accusation hanging over his head. Even if he was guilty, did he, under these circumstances, given who he was, where he was from, and what his life had been about, did you and his level of intelligence, uh, did you really want to take his life? Finding sympathetic jurors would prove to be a tall order because of the extreme aggravating circumstances in Foster's case. Now, how do you profile for jurors like that in Floyd County? It's difficult. Um, this is a pretty conservative community. Uh, not much, not, not much sympathy for socially deprived children growing up in that kind of environment. There were two elimination rounds in Foster's jury selection. First came removals for cause. Attorneys on both sides could lodge objections in this phase. Next came peremptory strikes. Here, lawyers could dismiss jurors without stating a reason. Eddie Hood was one of the potential jurors called to the courthouse on Tuesday, April 21, 1987. Middle-aged and married, Hood had an 18-year-old son at the time. Foster was 19. Hood was also a member of the Callahan Street Church of Christ. One of only a handful of black potential jurors, Hood reported to a room full of white people in a city still largely run by white people. Most of the um, leading authorities of our government was uh, predominantly white. And, uh, and in order to appease the government, they would make a token here and there uh, selection, maybe a policeman. Uh, or maybe a firefighter, but the only one who just wanted to actually say they're integrated. Despite the civil rights movement of the 1960s, which overturned the Jim Crow regime, Hood says lots of people still held on to old segregationist mindsets. There was an older generation that was living and still harbor certain uh, uh, ideas that. Uh, Integration wasn't a part of the society at that time. Even though um, it was coming, but uh, they stalled as much as they possibly can, or delay it as much as they could. Hood filled out a detailed questionnaire and fielded questions from attorneys on both sides. Hood also says he answered questions truthfully and didn't let the racial factors sway his thought process. 
especially that lady that was killed. She was an elderly white lady. And uh, so I'm sure they wanted to get a conviction, but I didn't discuss it with anybody because uh, uh, I didn't harbor any kind of racial uh, hatred because uh, uh, I wasn't taught that. See, that's a sort of a taught type of uh, mindset. Just so I already knew because I'm, you know, I, I was a part of the, growing up in the Jim Crow law era, born in it, lived in it. Forty-two jurors remained after Phase One ended on Friday, April twenty-fourth, nineteen eighty-seven. Only five were black. Hood was one of these. Phase two, the striking of the jury, started the following week. The prosecution had 10 strikes. The defense had 20. The state would go first. Both sides would strike back and forth until 12 jurors and two alternates remained. You're given a list with all the jurors' names and their numbers and, you know, defense, and you get your, I'm just going to say, let's say there's 24 people in the box and I'm going to strike six, he's going to strike six. So I'll just say, defense strikes and thanks jurors number four. And then she goes over to him and he'll say, state strikes juror number seven. And you just go back until everybody's out of strikes and what's left is your jury. Fennell says striking a jury is a lot like a game of chess. Each side tries to anticipate the moves of the other. Jamie and I were constantly talking because you're Where somebody strikes might tell you where they didn't strike, okay? And are they trying to get you to strike somebody or are they trying to not get you to strike somebody? It wasn't hard to guess how the prosecutors would spend their strikes, though. Not with Doug Pullen as assistant DA. The Death Penalty Information Center reports Pullen struck all 27 black prospective jurors in his five previous death penalty cases. Fennell and Wyatt expected Pullen and Lanier to try the same thing in Floyd County. They had already filed a pretrial Batson challenge in December 1986. The motion included the following statements. Quote, the district attorney's office in this county and his staff have, over a long period of time, excluded members of the black race from being allowed to serve on juries with a black defendant and white victim. This practice follows two centuries of discrimination against black people in every aspect of the criminal justice system. It is anticipated that the district attorney's office will attempt to continue its long pattern of racial discrimination in the exercise of its peremptory challenge. Thus, if the prosecution is permitted to strike all black persons or a disproportionate number of black persons from the jury, the defendant will be denied his rights to a fair trial, to equal protection of the law, to due process, and to protection from cruel and unusual punishment guaranteed to him and to all other people in this country by the 6th, 8th, and 14th Amendments to the United States Constitution. But that didn't stop Lanier and Pullen. On the morning of the jury strikes, Shirley Powell, one of the five black jurors, discovered she had a friend related to Foster. The court removed her for cause. After that, Pullen and Lanier struck the remaining four eligible black jurors. The dismissal didn't surprise Eddie Hood. I'll tell you the real truth, when uh, I was called to be questioned about the Foster's case, I said to myself, and I only said it to my wife, I said, well, more than likely they're not going to want me on the jury because uh, who 
the person that was killed and who did the killing, according to the, you know, allegation. So uh, I kind of, in my back of my mind, I kind of felt like they wasn't going to choose me uh, because um, at that time, there was still a lot of tension and racial tension in Floyd County. Hood went home that spring day in 1987 and didn't think much more about Foster's case. He had no idea the major role he'd play in determining Foster's fate one day. Fennell and Wyatt couldn't know this either. So they concentrated on winning over their seven-man, five-woman, all-white jury. Their chances weren't good. I mean, I, I would tell you that at that time in particular, uh, I would characterize most of our jurors back then as what I would call Old Testament Christians. Fennell knew it would be hard to argue with his eye for an eye mentality. In his opening remarks on Tuesday, April 28, 1987, Fennell appealed to jurors' sympathies. The Rome News Tribune reported Fennell's words from that day. Quote, we will show you the world Timothy was born in. You are not going to like it. Fennell tried to enlist Foster's family in his defense. And then we went to meet with his parents, and that was frightening. Uh, his dad uh, worked for the sanitation department. Um, and what we tried to tell him was, look, you know, we're, our, our focus of the case was going to be trying to save Tim's life. And um, when I tried to talk him through that, his dad, he wasn't having any of that. He was not going to say that he had not provided and taken good care of his children. He wasn't going to do it. And he obviously was a partaker of marijuana, um, talked about that a lot. And I'll never forget one time he said, you know, he said, uh, I work, I come home, we smoke our dope, we laugh, I can always make another kid. I'll never, I'll never forget him looking at me and saying that. That was horrifying. You know, because I had just become a dad myself. And I thought, my gosh, how can, how can a father say that about the child? I can always make another one. According to newspaper coverage of the trial, Fennell argued Foster's mother couldn't afford psychological help for her son. Fennell argued that Foster was mentally ill, intoxicated on the night of the murder, and unable to, quote, distinguish right from wrong. One argument Fennell did not make was a claim of intellectual disability or, quote, mental retardation. That's because Georgia's guilty but mentally retarded protection didn't exist at the time. Fennell said he argued everything in his power to prevent a death sentence. But the facts of the case remained. The recovered stolen items, the aggravating torture and rape, and Foster's confession. It's also important to note that in 1986, life without parole was not an option in sentencing. Jurors only had two options for defendants found guilty in capital cases. Life or death. A life sentence came with the possibility that Foster could get out on parole. It took the jury an hour and a half to deliberate and return guilty verdicts for theft, burglary, and murder. On Friday, May 1st, 1987, after an hour's consideration, the jury returned their sentence recommendation. Death. The outcome didn't surprise Fennell, but it saddened him. I knew it was coming. I don't remember so much the verdict being returned by the jury as I remember Judge Frazier pronouncing sentence. Because there's this thing you go through, this 
minutiae of you will be taken to a time and place and blah, 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 you know. And, and it's getting to that point where he's going to say death, you know. And, and, uh, and I was standing right beside Tim. And I can just, I remember just feeling horrible. It's hard to be standing beside an 18-year-old kid and watching him have a death sentence put on his head. What Fennell said struck him most from that day was how little the sentence seemed to affect Foster. Just, I'll never forget. And that's when, after Judge Frazier pronounced the sentence, they took Tim back into the holding cell. And I went back there with him. And I remember looking at Tim and saying, Tim, uh, I'm sorry. You know, I did everything I could. And he looked at, he didn't blink. He looked at me and he said, oh, I know you did, Bob. He said, but what about my cigarettes? When am I going to get them? You just had a death sentence put on your head and you're worried about your cigarettes? Fennell says Foster didn't seem able to register the gravity of his situation at all. Despite the conviction and sentence, Foster's legal battle was really only just beginning. Jamie Wyatt had studied up on the High Court's recent Batson decision. Given the demographics of Floyd County, Wyatt argued the prosecutor's strikes couldn't be anything other than discrimination. He renewed this Batson claim after Foster's sentencing. Fennell says Wyatt was also the attorney who stood up and asked Judge Frazier to impound the prosecutor's notes from jury selection. Frazier agreed, and the notes disappeared into the state's file. Wyatt couldn't have known at the time that the fate of the Foster case would hinge on that one small decision three decades later. That and more next time on Georgia v. Foster. Georgia v. Foster is reported and hosted by Grace Snell. This episode is produced by Stephen Shellhorn. Music courtesy of Pixabay.com. For more episodes, head to Vikingfusion.com or find us on Spotify. Thanks for listening. <laughs>